Hey, podcast listeners, Matt here. On this episode, you're going to hear from a good old Burlington, Ontario boy, Eric Muller. If this podcast has brought you any value, would love if you gave us a review, sent us an email, let us know how we could improve some guests. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 49, and today we have Eric Muller, the Director of Stakeholder Relations with Quest. But before we welcome Eric to the show, I would like to welcome my infamous co-host, uh, the one and only Lisa Barber. Lisa, welcome. Good afternoon, Matt. How are you doing today? I could not be better. And yourself? I'm very good also. Cool. Before we invite Eric, um, we'll, we'll keep him uh, in the green room for a minute. How, how did uh, how did you get connected to Eric? Interestingly enough, through Steve Quinlan. So I understand that Eric is Steve's cousin. Hopefully, I'm getting that right, Eric. Uh, and he said, "Look, you got to get uh, you got to get Eric on the podcast. Like he would be great." And I, I've met Eric a couple of times before, I think at a couple of OEB stakeholder, stakeholder engagements and uh, I'm trying to remember where else, maybe a Quest event. But uh, yeah, I met him a couple of times, so it wasn't like I was going in cold, but it was really interesting to, you know, kind of hear about the link between Steve and Eric. Wow, so, I did I did not know that. I'm glad I asked that question. That that was not, uh, not our normal rhythm, but uh, <laughs> excellent. Well, uh, without further ado, Eric, welcome to the Energy Radio Podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. Great to be here. And uh, I hope I can do Steve justice today. I'm going to do heard, my best. Have you heard his podcast? He was on a couple episodes ago. Have you heard his episode? I haven't heard it. I need to oh. I need to listen to that one. Really, really cool. Yeah. I'm a, yeah. I'm, a big, yeah? I'm a big Steve Quinlan fan. I've worked with him for over 10 years now. And 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 uh, it was uh, he knocked it out of the park. It was a great it, it wasn't all you know, uh, 60 Hertz, three phase, you know, protection and control design. It was very little of that actually. Uh, yes. So, so let's start with the fact checking. Are, are you indeed his cousin? I am indeed his cousin. Yes. Okay. Yes. Cool. And, and how often pre COVID, how often does the, do you connect as family? Oh, uh, you know, we get together now and again, we always try to build in, uh, a little adventure, a shared interest is, uh, is riding, uh, adrenaline-seeking roller coasters. So we try to do that every once in a while, do some road trips uh, to get on the, the world's best coasters down in Sandusky, Ohio. So that's a, a fun shared activity. Wow. Okay. I'm learning I'm learning more about Steve now, too. I, we're, I, we're, we're, we're these mild-mannered people, but all of a sudden there's this wild side you just don't <laughs> expect. Are you first cousins? Yes, we are. Yes, we no are. No way. Yeah. I just, I was watching you and I, I noticed some some mannerisms and I'm thinking, yeah, that, that, that a little bit like Oh, Steve. yeah. We we grew up playing, you know, hockey, street hockey together and, and hanging out. So I'm sure Steve has had an, has had an influence on me for sure. So are you, are you, where did you grow up then? I grew up in Burlington and he was in the hammer. No way. So, uh, so yeah, we would get together and, uh, and just play hockey on the driveway and and just enjoy uh, hanging out as cousins. And he was always the older cousin. So uh, cool. the cool older cousin. Yeah, well, he's still uh, the cool older cousin as far as exactly. I'm concerned. Exactly. So we got to talk about this. Burlington, where where in Burlington? Well, I grew up in uh, in Brant Hills in okay. Burlington, kind of the north end. Yeah, yeah. I went yeah. to uh, Notre Dame High School. I guess you know Burlington pretty well. So I'm a, I'm a Burlington guy as well. I grew up in the south end of Burlington uh kind of the nelson area i okay. didn't i didn't go to nelson but uh walker's line between fairview and uh 
Uh, oh man, this is not New Street between Fairview and New Street there. Okay. So yeah, are you still um, in Burlington now? Or are you in St. No, Catharines now? No, I'm, or? In, I'm in Niagara. My folks are still there. Um, okay. And uh, my uh, my bride grew up in Burlington as well. She was a uh, a C.H. Norton uh, alumni, so a little oh, yeah. bit. She's in the Head and Forest area there. So uh, so how, how, can I ask how old you are? Uh, I am in my mid thirties, so I'm 35. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So we're, we're the, we're about the same age. I, I'll be 35 in two weeks. So, um, nice. wow. So we probably, uh, offline, we probably can play some Burlington bingo. This is cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 Who knows <laughs> what kind of six degrees of separation connections we might I'm have. Trying to think, never... I'm trying to think of the guys I played soccer with, like Andrew Ducker and guys like that who went to Notre Dame. Those names ring a bell. Uh, not yet, but we could go down that. We could go yeah, down yeah, that path. Yeah, we probably we probably don't want to actually, uh, for the safety of the names Name that we game. would drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, we've we've covered your early years, Eric, but but bring us up to speed on uh, your your background, kind of b- beyond leaving Notre Dame in Burlington. Yeah. Where, oh yeah. Where did you go well, from there? I'm gonna give you a teaser on the personal life front, but I'll really focus in on the professional journey. But after age 17, I traveled across the world and went to a high school in Japan on an international youth exchange and found myself in many different places from there before finally coming back to Canada. So uh, I had spent quite a bit of time abroad in in various countries, living in different places, uh, but uh, came back to undergrad for Queens and did other exchanges to France and found myself in Korea teaching for a little while as well. Uh, But uh, that's the teaser for the personal front. We can do a whole other podcast uh, or just have have a good conversation over beers about that kind of stuff. But uh, on the professional front, um, uh, over 10 years ago now, I did my my master's uh, at Glendon, which is part of York University. Um, and I specialized then in uh, energy and environment, which was a great area to get into uh, and, you know, of personal interest to me. Um, and then and then from there, I was able to move into uh, the IESO, the Independent Electricity System Operator, as a, as a student, one of those co-ops. You know, they hire something like mm. 50 co-ops. I think Steve might have even been a co-op at one point there. Uh, but I was more, less on the techie, technical side of things, more on the softer communications and stakeholder relations side of things. So I spent a couple years at the IESO uh, learning under, you know, Terry Young, who is still a very influential person in the sector, yes. um, and uh, and then moved on from there uh, to the Ontario Power Authority, the former Ontario Power Authority, uh, into the Regulatory Affairs Group. And so, uh, you know, I like to describe it, and I'm sure you guys deal with regulatory stuff all the time, but I like to describe it as engineers and economists and uh and planners duking it out in front of the public you know and it's this mm. you know in dense dense legalese and documentation and stuff but it's actually these little battles going on and they're trying to come up with decisions and they're all duking it out so it's quite an interesting place for me to figure out what was going on in the ontario energy sector before the oeb and and even before the neb um, and then i moved into a whole different part of the opa under the Conservation Fund, which is now the Grid Innovation Fund. Uh, And that's very much like a a research and development fund uh, where we were investing and providing dollars to innovative energy efficiency 
uh, projects. So very much on like the impact investing side of things and research and development. And then back to the IESO through the merger. So you remember back in 2015, the yes. IESO and the OPA merged back together. And so they were, that completed my full circle journey of, uh, of IESO to OPA back to IESO and coming back together with lots of people. And without having done a, an engineering degree myself, I feel like all of that time at the IESO talking with all these PhDs in electrical engineering and PhDs in markets and, and economics, it was it's like a crash course in, uh, in electrical engineering. So great, great experience. Um, and I was lucky to uh, have a couple of little chances to get involved in the large renewable procurement while I was there, as well as some of the market rules uh, side of things. Uh, I like to joke that I was the, a good cop in market enforcement. I was the one trying to help people figure things out. Um, but yeah, I joined Quest a couple of years ago, uh, just over two years ago now. And first, I was the senior lead for Central Canada. Um, and depending on your perspective, uh, depending, uh, I mean, Central Canada for me was Ontario and Quebec, but we don't want to be too Ontario centric here, right? The prairies, you never know. Right. Uh, but uh, but now, uh, since then, became the director of stakeholder relations at Quest. Uh, so when you think about it, it's I've had about six or seven different roles in some 10 years now. So uh, quite a bit of uh, jack of all trades experience, um, which I think has really led kind of led me well to my to my work here with Quest uh, and fits well with the work at Quest where we're having a whole of energy approach to things and, and trying to bring in diverse stakeholders to talk about all forms of energy, how they can integrate, how they can come together, rather than just focusing in on different fuel types, different technology types, and you know, really promoting those. So um, that can be at the tactical level with you know municipal folks on the climate change front or community energy planning front, or at the strategic level, we'll bring together senior executives from the biggest energy companies, you know, these, the CEOs and talk about the energy transition, you know, together and try to figure that out together. Wow. That's there amazing. you go, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Eric, we, uh, we, of course, you know that we're, we're fond members of Quest, specifically the CHP consortium. In fact, I just got off of a call, as I mentioned, uh, as you were getting onto the podcast with Richard Laszlo um, and we're part of the, both the Ontario Consortium and the Alberta Consortium. But can you talk a little bit about those consortiums, you know, what they stand for, what they're doing, how people can get involved? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, for the chance to, to talk about that. You know, so Richard Laszlo is the lead of both of those uh, CHP working groups in Ontario and Alberta. And it's really filled this gap in the market where there is no voice for CHP and so we've kind of tried to fill that gap and Richard's done an amazing job. It's this, these information sharing forums for, for people in combined heat and power. Uh, and there's monthly meetings that happen in Ontario and, and in Alberta where they talk about the latest policies, programs, projects going on in terms of CHP and a big advocacy piece as well. So Richard does a great job of uh, getting folks together and talking about policy recommendations that uh, governments uh, provincially, federally, locally can consider to try to support CHP and advance CHP where it makes sense. Uh, so if anyone's interested, contact me, contact Richard Laszlo. 
uh, people can join and, and try out the, the working group meetings a little bit before you uh, become a supporter and, and officially join uh, for the longer for the longer run. Yeah, and just to touch on that policy and advocacy piece a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and just just so our listeners actually can get an understanding of what you guys are actually doing, um, you know, Richard has been, I think, well, you probably know this, is advocating very strongly to try and get the incentives in Alberta for CHP increased. Um, you know, so he's, you know, Quest is basically approaching the emissions reduction in Alberta to see if that's a possibility. Uh, unfortunately, I think he recently got turned down, uh, as I learned uh, over this last call. But, uh, you know, it's those types of initiatives that, you know, you guys are, are really kind of, you know, coming to the table with, which is great for obviously all of the people that are involved in that call and certainly for the industry as a whole. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are wins and losses, but you need a voice to go in and kind of advocate for the group. And so Richard can definitely speak to some of the some of the wins in both of those markets. Um, but also, I mean, even on the technical side, just getting into the nitty gritty with the OED and a bunch of processes to try to make CHP where it makes sense, uh, you know, try to make it more uh, more valuable and, and get it in the ground. Yeah. Now, you talk, whenever I'm around Quest, you know, there's a lot of talk around um, smart communities. Um, you know, what is that? Like, is that, yeah. you know, <laughs> there's a lot of communities yeah. that do dumb things. So, like, what is a smart community? Yeah. So, our our tagline is, is smart energy communities. And our whole vision is about accelerating smart energy communities across Canada. And the word smart is a little bit tricky uh, and, and can be defined in so many ways, but we, we really think about it as efficient and integrated community scale energy systems. So that's how we, that's how we think of smart. We think about it in a way that when we're, when we're talking with communities and municipalities, we try to meet them where they're at and not try to impose cookie cutter solutions or even technology specific solutions. It's really about meeting them where they're at and working with them, depending on what their situation is, what their preferences are, their grid intensity in terms of emissions. Um, and and not only the, the technical side of it, but SMART can also be about governance. It can be about having good capacity at the staff or, or community level to advance different things. So we've got a whole tool around SMART Energy Communities. Uh, it's free to download. It, it helps communities track their progress on how they're doing to become a smart energy community. And it's free to download at uh, smartenergycommunities.ca. And it really lays out all the indicators from a, a technical side of things, you know, energy, water, uh, et cetera, to a kind of non-technical side of things in terms of governance and capacity uh, for these communities to uh, have more community scale energy systems in an integrated and efficient way. So what does that look like in terms of, let's get a bit more practical. Yeah. And what I've often struggled with in the when I hear about these smart energy communities is like energy as a, you know, as something that, you know, is governed, it's typically governed at the provincial level in, in Canada, right? And and so you have these communities that want to do something but may have, like, so, so how, what are some practical things that communities are, are doing or can be doing whether it's projects or initiatives that help them become smart energy communities within the confines of, of the, the sandbox that's defined by the province. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right to say that 
you know, it's a provincial jurisdiction for the most part. But I think what we're seeing and we have been seeing for, you know, over a decade, especially in Ontario and in B.C. as well and all across Canada is a lot of these local municipalities, regional municipalities are seeing that are just trying to take more control of their own energy futures. Um, and you're seeing it not only at the community level, but I'm sure in your own work at CEM, you're probably seeing it quite a bit at the private level as well and on-site generation, et cetera. So, um, and CHP obviously so, but these communities I think are are realizing that uh, they want to take more control of their energy, energy future. And they're doing that at a foundational level by coming up with community energy plans, local energy plans, uh, and then trying to implement them. So they usually have a, a whole suite or menu of ideas and options mm. to meet those goals. So from installing CHP to district energy systems to, you know, the transportation side of things. And I think the real crux of their argument in the past has been a dollars argument. They say they almost look at their borders and say, here's all of the energy coming into our community uh as an import almost within the municipal municipal boundary and here are all the dollars that are leaving the community in a way that are going to the electricity grid that are going to the natural gas grid that are going to you know transportation fuels uh for vehicles etc so they take this kind of local uh, approach where they see themselves as you know this borderline of this community imports and exports dollars leaving and so they say how can we how can we keep some more of these dollars within our community by implementing these local projects that may be municipally owned they may be you know pub public private partnerships and that way the energy is used is made used and moved locally rather than being kind of brought in from you know yeah. externally so that's that's just a, a little bit of a taste of that but i would also say now we can get to this as well but it really was the dollars and cents conversation previously, but I'm seeing a major shift now in terms of climate action and climate emergency uh, from these communities that, you know, they are now being the driver was, you know, the dollars leaving the community previously. And now it's that and their citizens, their elected officials are now saying we want to do more in terms of our emissions. And so there's a huge driver there as well. Um, that uh, that is driving a lot of this kind of local energy and local climate action that we're seeing. And Eric, when we talk about communities, like who are the people really that you guys are speaking with? Is it new housing developments? I mean, yes, maybe municipalities. Like I'm, I'm thinking of a, you know, a residential community, a municipality wants to maybe deploy a number of different technologies. Maybe it's solar on, you know, roofs and smart energy meters and, you know, you name it, all that yeah. stuff. But maybe yep. there's one or two house house owners or residentials that don't want to be part of this. Like, how, how does this work like for existing communities and how does it work for new communities? Yeah, communities is such a I should define what we mean by communities, because it really could mean like a new development in a city or something like that. But the way we use the word community is it is a municipality and all of the stakeholders within that municipality. So. Mm -hmm let's say city of Burlington, you know, where, where Matt and I grew up, uh, it's, there are, there's a team of people at the city working to implement a climate change action plan for the city and working with all these stakeholders within the city 
to implement different different projects based on that, from EVs to you know other other aspects on the energy side of things. So so when we say communities, it's really about those those local municipalities or regional municipalities and all of their stakeholders involved. So you know businesses, of course, developers, of course, not for profits, of course, as well. Um, academics, universities, everyone that's involved in that conversation, you know, large industry as well. Uh, Oakville has done a really great job uh, of, uh, of kind of harnessing all of their stakeholders and bringing them together into these, how do we take control of our own energy uh, and emissions future kind of conversations. Let's, let's build on that piece because the term herding cats comes to mind quite, quite, <laughs> quite candidly, right? Like, sure, sure. you know, in, in private enterprise, you set objectives and, you know, you re, everybody has a common objective. And if they don't, well, the, the door's over there, right? Like, you know, whereas in, I have a lot of empathy and, and quite frankly, not enough patience myself um, to get engaged in, in what you're doing. Like, I, what, what's, what's the secret sauce for having all these distributed stakeholders making sure that everybody's participating and generating action. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, uh, you know, we we run all these working groups at Quest and we're we're trying to bring together diverse stakeholders at all levels to have these conversations exactly as we're talking about right now and try to, you know, advance that energy transition over time. The pace of change is a whole other question we can get into later, depending on your perspective. but. I'm thinking about, you know, the the community energy manager or climate change, you know, coordinator for any of these cities that we've mentioned so far across Canada and the tireless cat herding that they have to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so for me, I'll go back to my role at Quest and what we do at Quest. That's it's quite exciting and exhilarating to see people coming together who normally aren't talking to each other. Uh, we have a leaders dialogue with all the CEOs and, and senior execs from all of these major companies like Enbridge and Fortis and, you know, uh, Canadian Electricity Association and regulators. And we're getting them all together and they're, you see these light bulbs going off and they're figuring stuff out together. And similarly, at our working group level, you'll see light bulbs going off and you'll see that people are learning from each other. And there's actually good outputs outputs happening from these uh, these convenings. But yeah, for, for the local person working locally, I think it it can be a real challenge, certainly the cat herding piece. But I think what I'm seeing from just talking with these these different folks working at the ground level in their communities, it's just they're they're passionate about their their purpose, you know, and uh, you know, City of Toronto has a whole team of 150 people or more working in energy and environment, whereas uh, someone on my working group call this morning is the only person in their town, you know, <laughs> trying to trying to do something. And I think what really connects everyone is really that passion uh, to see some progress uh, on the energy and climate change front. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's just tough. It's tough work. Um, and but I mean, we're seeing we're seeing great examples coming out of uh, even in Ontario. Waterloo Region and Guelph and Oakville and so many others are really leading in this front and and the ISO is even taking quite an interest and involved in a lot of our conversations because they're realizing wow okay communities are uh, are really starting to do a heck of a lot more locally 
and we need to pay more attention than ever before. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you know passion a couple times, and I think I think you're you're right that that passion and 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 leadership behind that passion that will inspire others. And this is not this is not something where you can you know force it down people. Uh, you have to inspire and be winsome and 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 bring people along. And and you're right, passion goes a long way uh, towards towards getting that. Um, one particular technology that I'm always intrigued about, and I know it's tough slugging, is uh, is district energy. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. What, are you know, you're, you're still seeing that as a tool? Are you seeing some? You know, everybody knows that uh, you know N Wave in Toronto and Markham and, and sure. others. But yeah. but are, you, are are there other emerging? Maybe you can give us a, a smaller example, or is that still a, a coming of age technology? Or you're seeing it more and more? Yeah, we. Uh... So we do run a working group specifically on district energy at the national level. So we've got these DE providers like N-Wave and Creative Energy and others that, and smaller players as well that are in that in that market, uh, just trying to expand and trying to grow and trying to get district energy on the map in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, we, it's almost this, it's quite a missed opportunity from decades when you think about it. And so now we're really playing catch up when you compare us to, you know, many Nordic countries that you hear of stories of uh, something like 80% of an entire uh, country is, is covered in terms of district heating. Um, the UK, though, provides a great example for us uh, where they are really trying to bring in more district energy and Canada can look to the UK for some for some inspiration, really. Um, so, but to, yeah, to really get to your question, Matt, um it is happening we're seeing it more at the we're hearing great project examples at the building level uh and even at the kind of campus level it's still still you know projects going on there uh but as you said it's kind of a it's an uphill battle and it's something that we continue to to work at and just i think one of the biggest challenges over the last couple of years at least my time at quest is just having people understand and appreciate that this is a whole other way of heating and cooling, you know, buildings and entire neighborhoods and entire communities and even entire cities. And so getting people out of their own silos. I mean, I was at the IESO and the OPA for quite a while and district energy rarely even ever crossed my radar. It was just a foreign thing to me. So that was a new, new thing coming into quest and getting more aware of that. So I really think that, you know, we we do advocacy with District Energy to the federal government. We're currently doing work uh, uh, to try to get it more involved in the uh, output-based pricing system and get it uh, kind of to be eligible under that as well. Uh, so so we're working there just to, you know, open up more doors to District Energy because it's it. Some people would argue it's got to be part of our solutions going forward. We need to expand this. Uh, Otherwise, we're just not going to hit, you know, the the targets that we're looking to hit. Uh, yeah, and I, I think Lisa's got a question here, and I'm 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 hogging too much time, but I I just <laughs> I'll close with I'll close with this on the district energy thing. Like I just in in Niagara here, there's still a lot of housing development going on, and I just every time I see a lot of dirt being moved and services going in, and I I don't check, but I'm pretty confident there's no pre-insulated pipe going in the ground there, and I just <laughs> breaks yeah. my heart you know yeah. breaks my heart that that's you know that that's not kind of you know we're putting in in uh prob- we're probably putting in fiber 
Uh, we didn't understand that right away. We're certainly putting in electricity and uh, we, maybe we're not putting in phone anymore. I don't know. But why aren't we putting in, you know, two pipes in the ground, too? So, yeah. Yeah. I, want to, uh, I wanted to focus on something you said earlier, Eric. It was uh, the pace of change. And oh, yeah. You know, we've, yeah. we've just seen, you know, a huge, you know, change in our business over the last six to nine months. It sounds like you know, you're talking about some of those changes, the municipalities who want to get on board. Uh, it, you know, is if what, what's the reason for the change in that six to nine month period? Because it seems that it's been like it, it's changed and it's very aggressive like that, that change. It's not like it just, uh, you know, like it happened over the course of many years. So do you think that that change is what, what is the you know, what what's the reason for the change to begin with? Is did COVID have something to do with it, for example? And then do you think that we're going to still stay at that same pace of, of acceleration? Yeah, yeah. And and when we talk about acceleration and momentum, I'm I'm thinking here about, you know, carbon pricing, electrification, net zero commitments, hydrogen uh, opportunities that are being explored, renewable natural gas, all of these different uh, fuels and technologies and innovations that that could be coming, even small modular reactors, et cetera. But yeah, what I'm seeing from from where the people, I, the stakeholders I get to talk with, and from what I'm reading as well, there is a ton of momentum in the last year in Canada and in Europe. And this is even despite our neighbor to the south, you know, potentially slowing some of this momentum over the last number of years in some areas. But I really see that coming out of COVID. There's been such a large focus on economic recovery, of course, but they're really tying it. The federal government and, and governments in general seem to be tying it to the recovery being founded on a cleaner and more sustainable foundation than before. So the whole building back better concept. And so I do think that we're seeing some serious momentum here. I think the acceleration will continue. And I think now especially south of, south of the border with the U.S. now taking on a more active leadership role mm -hmm. in climate change and the energy transition writ large, uh, Canada is going to need to kind of keep up. Uh, even though we were kind of leading compared to the U.S. previously, uh, there was a great opinion piece in The Globe uh, recently where they said Canada tr typically tries to align its policies with the U.S. and then just do a little bit better. So that's just, they don't look too bad, but they're just doing a little bit better than their cousins to the South. But now that the U.S. is really taking on more of that active leadership, now Canada is at risk of falling behind. And so that I, I think is quite a strong driver for continued momentum mm. and acceleration of, uh, of a sustainable building back better. Uh, but beyond governments, I think, you know, you said you're seeing it in your uh, sector and, and with your customers and clients. Uh, we're seeing it at the local level with communities, municipalities trying to take more charge uh, and their citizens are demanding it and their, you know, elected officials are demanding it. But even, you know, big banks are all signing on to net zero pledges all within the last, you know, few months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And no, no big bank wants to look like they're lagging behind the others. So, you know, auto companies with electric vehicle goals, GM, et cetera. So I think there's there's quite a bit of uh, stakeholder, shareholder activism that's going on as well in terms of uh, in investors driving these publicly traded companies to 
to try to do better in terms of uh, ESG, environment, social, and governance uh, uh, perspectives. Mark Carney's leading a bunch of work in this area as well. So I really feel like the momentum is there, the acceleration is there. But at the same time, I will I will caveat and say things aren't going to change overnight in terms of the pace of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will still have most of our existing infrastructure for the foreseeable future. Um, but there are some areas, you know, where there could be some big shifts in the medium term in the next five years. Going back to what Matt was saying, kind of in our in our pre-conversation about uh, about you know low or zero emissions vehicles, mm-hmm. they're seeing some surveys about something like 60 or 70 percent of people are looking to buy an EV or or some sort of zero emission vehicle within the next five years. So so that's one area we could see some significant shifts. But in terms of pipes and wires and you know, pipes in the ground, that's all going to remain. But I think, you know, we can talk more about what, where that might go with some of those things in the longer term. Well, well let's, let's talk about that if you don't mind yeah. right now. So you've got, yeah. you know, you've got 20 years, 50 years, 100 years ahead of you. You know, what, what do you think it's going to look like? Is there, are there certain technologies that have been adopted? Are there others, others that were left out? You know, if you had a crystal ball, what would that look like in your mind? Yeah, I would say... I'll give you the quest perspective and then I'll give you my personal perspective. <laughs> just, uh, just so I'm I hope, I hope they there. differ. I hope they differ. Cause this will be fun. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's, let's have some fun with this. Let's see where it goes. Yeah, no, uh, a quest from a quest perspective, we are, so, you know, we're this national NGO We're we're technology agnostic, we're fuel agnostic. So I wouldn't say, you know, in 20 years that one fuel is is going to do better than another from a quest perspective like we just have to be open to all the different types of fuels and technologies in the right applications in the right use cases depending on your you know local government your provincial grid etc um so so that's the kind of quest perspective but from a personal perspective you know from what i read there's a ton of growth uh, globally in renewables especially with renewable hybrids uh, coming coming up, you know, where you've got renewables mixed with uh, storage on site uh, at the grid level with costs continuing to come down. So I'm not saying that they're the only part of the solution, but I think they're going to just keep growing. And even from a, an investment and market perspective, you know, stock prices talk, money talks. So you're seeing quite a bit of growth in the, in that area. But as I was saying before, you know, our existing infrastructure, if we're looking 20 years out, it will still be there, but I just think it will be more efficient and cleaner than before. And let's talk about, you know, I'm not a technical expert, but local CHP or on-site systems, they could start to integrate more renewable fuels, uh, biomass integration, hydrogen integration into those uh, systems. Uh, renewable natural gas being more integrated into into those systems or into the into the pipelines as well, um, and then also I mean there could be a hybrid mix with more microgrid elements that really pick up as well in terms of building in local renewables mixed with you know local CHP and I think we could start to see quite a bit more of that leveraging kind of cleaner fuels but you know transmission lines distribution lines they're all still going to be there and I think. They will still be used most of the time, but not all of the time, not as much as we're using them now. I think we'll start to see 
similarly with pipes uh, in the ground, we'll start to see cleaner fuels being uh, injected like renewable natural gas uh, into the pipe pipelines, but also for transport as well. I think we'll start to see changes there. And one other one other technology just to throw in is is a wild card. I'm not an expert in it, but small modular reactors. We'll see. Mm. It doesn't look like there's going to be a lot going on in the near term, but I mean, 20 years out, we could see if there's uh, there could be some some tipping points there. So I'm an optimist. I think that we will have made some some quite a bit of energy transition uh, within 20 years. I do have a, a healthy dose of realism in there as well, though. So I think we will hopefully be making a difference on the energy and climate front, but also recognizing that it's not going to change overnight and it's going to be all of these dif- different fuel types mixing in there. And what, what I think is interesting, you mentioned infrastructure a bunch of times, and infrastructure really is is uh, agnostic to you know how the how the energy, whether it be a gaseous or a uh, electrical form of energy, it's agnostic to how it's generated. Uh, and so the fact that the uh, infrastructure will be here many years into the future is is a good thing because you know we're still going to have to move energy from point A to point B. And I think your point your point is valid that you know it's the it's the generation sources uh, that need to get cleaner. That's that's you know certainly one piece. And then uh, you know at point of use, you know how can we use less? Right, the, the whole conservation you know piece. And I think that's quite frankly, it's not as sexy, it's not as attractive, um, but it's, you know, arguably more important uh, because it's, you know, it's got more bang for your buck most of the time. So Absolutely. yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, the, 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 the market will pick the winners. None of us are going to pick the winners, but it's, you know, we have to, we have to have, uh, it's like a, a well-balanced uh, stock portfolio. You have to have a bunch of, a bunch of stuff because something's going to win, right? So you have to pursue it all. So Matt, if I could turn the the table a little bit and just ask, and Matt and Lisa, really, uh, are you starting to kind of do some more of these types of projects yourselves that are integrating some of these, you know, cleaner fuels within your cogen systems and and trying to, are you seeing more demand for this from your customers? Yeah, it's 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 actually quite crazy. Uh, I just finished a, a one hour meeting with uh, our founder, who is now our vice president of CO two reductions, Martin Lensink. And he is working on uh, our post-carbon playbook, is what we're calling it. And it's a list of uh, different technologies that we want to be able to offer to our clients. I think the list was at last count 16 or 17 different technologies. So it's everything from anaerobic digestion to, uh, you know, uh, biomass to, you know, hydrogen to heat pumps to everything in between. And I... It's at least once a week that we're finding out about a biogas job or an RNG job or, you know, everybody, you know, we're we're 45 minutes into this conversation and we've just now getting to hydrogen. That's that's a first. <laughs> usually usually we're getting to hydrogen, you know, very quickly. Like that's that's the sexy term. We don't we don't deal a lot in renewables like like wind and solar sure, ourselves. Sure. Um, but all those, you know, the, every conversation, whenever we're buying equipment, can it burn hydrogen? Can, you know, what are we doing about RNG? It's, it's coming up all the time and it's exciting. It's really, really yep. exciting. At least yep. you might be seeing a different perspective, but that's, you know, I think. No, no, basically the same thing. And it's, it's just funny. I'm, I'm looking at my desk right now and I have a couple of piles of paper only because in some cases these are RFPs. So <laughs> there's more to read and I needed to actually do this at bedtime and not in front of my computer, but uh, I've got uh, 
two, hold on a second, yeah, two uh, RNG opportunities, a hydrogen opportunity on my desk, and then the last one is simple cycle units, uh, yeah. generation, natural yeah. gas fire generation. So yeah. that ratio, that mix, like if you would have, if you like, if we would have talked, if we would have had this podcast a year ago, that would have been completely different. Mm -hmm. um, and I was being exposed at that time to renewable natural gas projects or AD projects, but not to the extent that I have over the last, I don't know, two or three months even. Like it's been, it's crazy, um, but it's great. I'm, I'm loving it. So. So you're, you're, you're on the forefront. You're, you're already planning post carbon. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. And, and I would say we're not, you know, we're not on the, the leading edge necessarily our clientele are on the leading edge you know they're especially those who have you know corporate head offices uh, overseas in particular you know in europe and roots into europe they are really driving the conversation and we're just trying to keep up and you know trying to stay ahead of it uh, but we always want to be at the at the forefront and at our core we're, we're thermal power uh, engineers and and that you know for the longest time we've burned fossil based um, you know, fuels and, and 10, 15 years ago, Martin saw the writing on the wall and he went over to Europe and already started to explore biogas. And, and so, and, and it's jurisdictional, right? Like here in Ontario, it's, you know, natural gas. No, no, no. That's a swear word in, in, in Alberta. <laughs> oh, we can get off of coal with natural gas. Like it's a transitory exactly. fuel, right? So it, it is exactly. contextual as well. Uh, so yeah. we need to be authentic about that. Right. Um, so yeah, it's a I fascinating like joke, space. Uh, you know, you mentioned conservation. Sorry there, Matt, but it almost seemed when, uh, in some ways, natural gas, depending on who you talk to or which political leader, it can definitely be a swear word to some. But even conservation can be a swear word to to some as well. So it's uh, really depends on who you talk to. But I think, you know, all of the above approach, we have to we have to keep all of these fuels in mind, for sure. So as we talk about, you know, these different fuels and, you know, looking into the future, Eric, what, what do you think is required to get us there? You know, you, you compared the difference between, you know, south of the border and Canada, maybe where Europe is as well. Everyone's in a little bit of a different spot, but what, what do you think is going to accelerate that further and, and get us to adopt some of those cleaner technologies? Like, is it carbon tax? What's what's your opinion on that? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's always a tricky one and it's... Uh, once again, I'll I'll just kind of give my personal perspective here, I guess, and say I'm not I'm not an economist. I'm not trained as that, but what I do hear from economists and and you know, I just heard Matt say it five minutes ago, the market will, you know, figure things out. The market will prevail. And so what I what I do hear and what I read is that a carbon tax is, you know, a quite simple and efficient way to get movement there and to keep that movement. You know, the government calls it a putting a price on pollution. You can call it whatever you like, but I don't think it's the only driver that's accelerating change, but I think it's a good foundation for the market to kind of take the lead. And I think that's that's an efficient kind of way to uh, to get there and a competitive way to get there. But it kind of, as I was mentioning earlier, yeah, citizens are demanding cleaner and greener, not only from uh, from an energy perspective, but just they'll look at their, you know, Apple Watch and ask how it was manufactured and if it was fair and if it was equitable, et cetera. And, um, you know, the U.S. influence, obviously, as well. Um, but I think, yeah, you know, the carbon tax is not perfect. You've if you've got certain industries 
I know there's more nuance here, but getting exemptions over time and certain ones are in and certain ones are out, it can get a little bit convoluted. And so um, at, at a minimum, though, it, it hopefully doesn't require as much government intervention in the marketplace to see movement where governments are making, we don't want them to be, you know, picking the winners and the losers, but uh, really just let the market figure it out. Um, but I will say, I did see in the Globe just this week that uh, I think the Supreme Court ruling on this very topic on the carbon tax is coming down tomorrow. So uh, on the constitutionality of this. So in terms of the federal versus the provincial jurisdiction and some of the provinces were fighting it. So it's expected to come tomorrow. So we will see what happens from there. And uh, the, the journey will continue. Wow. Awesome. So maybe let's just shift to more of a fun question. Uh, yeah. You have to pick a car in five years. Is it electric <laughs> or is it hydrogen and why? Yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to just say I've got two young kids. Uh, I'm looking for something, you know, midsize or compact crossover. So I'm seeing there's some nice electrics coming down the road in, in that category. There's like a nice RAV4 Prime or something coming down the road. So I would I would love to get one of those at one point. Although like hydrogen is very cool as well and I just don't I just don't see the market there yet. Mm. Maybe 10 years from now or longer we could start to see some more uh, personal vehicles on hydrogen, but I mean commercial vehicles, fleets, maybe that's where some of the use cases might end up, but yeah, I don't I don't drive electric or hybrid yet, but I uh, I'm interested. I'm I'm in those stats that I mentioned earlier. I'm one of the 70% or whatever it is. I, we just went through, uh, we had a 2007 Grand Caravan that uh, bit the dust last summer. And so we were in the, the minivan market for our three kids. And um, I got really close to uh, to an electric, I think Chrysler Pacifica has an electric uh, minivan, but it was like $70,000. And I, <laughs> I, I think it's a fully electric. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. I think they had a fully electric and a hybrid. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just <clears throat> that's uh, people are starving in this world. I, I could I couldn't have, I couldn't yeah, do seventy thousand dollars for an electric van. When you can get a caravan for twenty, it's a yeah, little right. yeah. Yeah. So so how many kilometers did you have on that before uh, it hit the dust? Three fifteen. Nice. Yeah. Wow, yeah. you really so, really drove it to the ground. And and you know what would have would have killed it was the rust on the underbelly. The the engine was fine. Uh, it just it, it would have gone like this, you know, down the road, <laughs> you know. So I did. I wouldn't have wanted to get that call from my much better half, so I decided yeah. to, to to trade up. So good for yeah, you. Good. Yeah, good. So Eric, as we kind of close here, any uh, any parting shots or any closing thoughts as we uh, wrap up our fun time together? Yeah, no, this was great just to just to hang out and talk about energy and a little bit about the the energy transition. You know, Quest, we're always kind of convening people together through working groups, through projects, through research. So. If you want to get in, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a message, send me an email. I'm always interested in meeting new people and we always want to expand our network. Um, CEM is a supporter of Quest. So I just want to thank you for your support as well. And uh, and just looking forward to where these conversations will go and, and not just the conversations with the actions that come out of them. So uh, CEM's involved and I would encourage anyone listening who's not involved to get into these broader level energy conversations because it will benefit you especially with all these trends uh, on the horizon or oh, they're already here really 
Yeah, and and you know the conversation piece is is important because you know as you mentioned a little bit earlier, these these light bulbs go on, right? And and for some of us, they they they're on a dimmer switch. For others, they they come on quickly. But you know, if you don't have the conversations, the light bulbs don't go on. Go on, and if the light bulbs don't go on, then action doesn't take place, right? So that's you know that's really what our goal is with Energy Radio is to have these conversations, and if they bring you know, some value to somebody in some way, uh, we've done, you know, our job. And so we, we appreciate Eric, you joining us and being part of the conversation and um, being uh, our guest for episode 49 uh, of Energy Radio. So Eric, on behalf of, of Mark and Lisa, thank you uh, so much for joining us today. It was a it was a real pleasure. And thank, thank you. you. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And, and to our listeners, um, uh, thank you for joining us, Mark and Lisa. Thank you for all that you do. And until we're uh, together again next time, uh, stay safe and have fun.